Hello, Christ community. Uh, glad all of you are here. Greetings to our West Campus that meets at Northridge High School and our Traditions venue and those joining us on our app or online or, or whatever. Just so glad that all of you are joining us and engaging with us. Uh, before we jump into the message, I wanted to add something to what was mentioned earlier in the announcements. We're, we're a church that is all about moving towards needs in our community. Um, our whole For the City and Beyond vision is all about that, you know, identifying specific needs in our community and then bringing the love of Jesus to those areas. And a crucial part of that vision of For the City and Beyond is partnering with organizations who are already in the trenches doing some amazing work. And so this upcoming Serve Day on July 14th is all about helping some of these organizations so that they can do a better job meeting these needs in our community. So we are helping ministries like The Way Home for Women, which is helping women break out of addiction and we're helping with Jobs of Hope, which is an amazing ministry helping guys get out of gangs or just gangs as they're coming out of prison or, or just all those, those unique challenges there. We're helping um, Habitat for Humanity. We're helping Youth for Christ as well as the Genesis Project. So great ministries. Plus, we're doing it with 15 other churches in this city and like 40 other churches in northern Colorado and 400 churches around the world are all serving on that day. So I just want to encourage you, if you are not yet signed up, please sign up for this. Be a part of this amazing opportunity to serve our community and to bless these ministries. You can do it as an e-group, you can do it as a family, individual, but here's the deal. You do need to sign up by this Monday, okay? This Monday so that we can allocate people resources. So get online and sign up as soon as possible. And if, if for some reason July 14th doesn't work for you, you're out of town or whatever, we do have another day, a serve day in August, August 11th, that's going to be focused on schools, blessing some of our schools in the area. So, so encourage you um, to be a part of both of these or one of these serve days. You know, one thing I love about our church is how eager and faithful you are to get out of your comfort zone and serve people in need. So let's go for it. All right. Um, if you have your Bible or Bible app, feel free to turn to Psalm 3. We are in the third week of a summer teaching series where we're focusing on this amazing section of the Bible known as the Psalms. Now the Psalms are some of my favorite portions of the Bible because in the Psalms we see this very vulnerable window into the human heart, right? In the Psalms we see people struggling with depression or with anxiety or with anger, or loneliness, or with discouragement, with failure, all of these very real emotions that we all experience at times in our lives. But what's so fascinating and so powerful about the Psalms is that all the people, it's, it's what the, these, these people in the Psalms, what they do with their emotions, because it is very different than the way many people today deal with their negative emotions, okay? So one, one common response today to, to deal with negative emotions is to stuff them, right? Don't admit that you're angry. Don't admit you're depressed. Just pretend to have your act together. And I hate to say this, but this is especially true in churches and in Christian families, right? Because in those contexts, the, the idea is, oh, we can't let people see our weaknesses because that's unspiritual, right? So we stuff them. Man, how much damage 
has been done um, in the lives of people growing up in families or churches like that where emotions get stuffed. The other response that's often encouraged today is just express your negative emotions, right? Just let it out on social media or wherever. Just unleash your anger, you know, tell the world about your discouragement or whatever. And and this choice, that choice may make us feel better initially, but it doesn't really help us deal with these negative emotions. Now, in the Psalms, we actually see a third option. Rather than stuffing our emotions or just expressing our emotions, the psalmists pray their emotions. They pray their emotions. They run to God with their anger, with their fear, with their disillusionment. And in doing so, they learn to walk with God in the midst of life's challenges. So let me just kind of start here with a question. We're talking about praying our emotions, all that. Let me just ask a question here. So how is your prayer life these days? How is your prayer life these days? Is it it sporadic? Is it sterile? boring, or is it like the psalmist, raw and real and vibrant? See, what what I've found in my own life is that the more that I pray like the psalmist, the more my prayer life comes alive. The more I pray like the psalmist, the more authentic my relationship with God feels. And so my hope is that in this this, this series, we're we're not going to just listen to these messages and think, oh, that was interesting. My hope is that we're going to explore and we're actually going to practice what it looks like to pray these psalms in our lives. And we've actually created a tool for this whole series this summer, a postcard you can pick up in the lobby And on one side, we have just created this way you can, just some practices you can use on any psalm, and you can pray and engage in these psalms personally. So you can pick that up in the info area after the service today. Okay, so so today we're looking at Psalm 3, which was written by David during one of the most painful experiences in his life. This is one one of the unique psalms where we actually know the circumstance that moved David to write this psalm. We're told in the intro that this is a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. So we already know the circumstance in which this psalm was written. David is fleeing from his son Absalom. So what is that about? Well, we learn from 2 Samuel 14 and 15. You can look at this later. 2 Samuel 14 and 15. That Absalom was a very rebellious son of David. He was handsome, he was attractive, kind of a charismatic personality, had, an, had amazing hair, by the way, we know that, but he was a scoundrel at heart. He was self-centered, he was proud, and he liked to manipulate situations towards his own ends, no matter who was impacted. And, and what made it worse was that David, his father David, was unwilling to discipline Absalom. He just kind of let him do whatever he wanted to do. He, his, love, his love for his son kind of clouded his ability to discipline and to train and to set boundaries, which as, as parents, we realize is ultimately unloving, right? This is another sermon, but I just want to mention it. We know this, that when we fail to discipline our children, loving discipline, but we fail to discipline our children, we're doing them a disservice, 
We're not loving them, but that's another topic. Okay, so over a period of four years, what Absalom would do, now he's an adult, what he would do, he would go out into the gate of Jerusalem. He would sit outside the city of Jerusalem with his kind of band of who knows what, misfits or whatever, but he would, he would hang out there. And when anyone would come into the city to, because they had a complaint or a concern they wanted to talk to King David about, Absalom would take them aside and talk about how bad King David really was and how, King, how Absalom would do a much better job taking care of this situation. So what happened, this went on for over four years, this was going on. So Absalom actually stole the hearts of the people right underneath David. He stole the hearts of the people. So one day Absalom decided, I'm ready. And so he traveled to Hebron with his small army and he declared himself king of Israel. Now, rather than taking up arms and squashing this rebellion, when David heard about it, rather than, you know, going after Absalom, no, what he did is he chose to flee Jerusalem. He chose to leave the city and let Absalom have this incredibly important city. In fact, we're told that as David was leaving, he was weeping. As he was walking up the Mount of Olives, he was weeping with sadness. To add insult to injury, when David got to a nearby city, a relative of King Saul, who was the king before David, started yelling at David and calling him names, calling him a murderer and a scoundrel, and then saying that all this bad stuff is happening because of, how, of, of, of David's sinfulness. So when Absalom, David flees the city, Absalom gets to the city. First thing he does, he pitches a tent on the, on, on the roof, he pinches a tent on the roof and he had sex with David's concubines just so that everyone could see his, his disdain for his father. So talk about having a bad day. See, David was under attack physically and emotionally. He was experiencing fear, shame, rejection, doubt, humiliation, regret, despair, all at the same time. His world was collapsing. So what did David do in the midst of this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day? Okay, Psalm 3 shows us. Look, look at the first word of this psalm. Lord, Lord. See, David's instinct was to run to God. David didn't stuff his emotions. He didn't vent his emotions. He ran to God with his emotions. See, this psalm is a prayer, but it is much more than a, than a quick help me God prayer. This psalm shows us how to pray when our life is falling apart. How to experience God when we feel attacked. And so let's unpack this amazing prayer. There, there are four responses I want to highlight here. The first response in this prayer that we see in David is brutal honesty. Brutal honesty. David goes to the Lord and he tells it like it is. Verse 1, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. See, this is David just being brutally honest before the Lord. He's not sugarcoating his situation. He's not exaggerating his situation. He's not stuffing it. He's not pretending that nothing is really wrong and that he's got everything together. No, putting on his game day face. No, no, no. He's not doing that. I've got this. No, he's not doing that. He goes to the Lord and he is brutally honest about his situation and about what he is feeling. Now notice how there are, two, there are two levels of this attack that he's experiencing. One is this external reality. I mean, the, the physical threat. His life is literally in danger. 
His life is in danger. There are many who rise up against him. Absalom wants to kill him. There are many who rise up against him. That's his reality. He is in physical danger. He is fleeing for his life. But there's more. There's another level of this that David acknowledges as well. And that is the internal battle. So he has this external battle, and then he has this internal battle. Look again at verse 2. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. See, this is not about a physical, this is not here, this is not just about a physical threat. This is a battle being waged in David's heart and mind. Is God going to come through for me? Is God going to help me? Is God going to deliver me? Many people around me are saying no. God's not going to deliver him. And here's the reality, folks. They, the people around him saying this, they have some reasonable evidence to back this up. David has not been a good father. He has totally messed up with Bathsheba. That whole deal with Bathsheba just totally messed up. And then he arranged for her husband to be killed. Um, he hasn't exactly been this shining example of godly leadership. David has experienced his share of brokenness and failure. See, the, the, these voices of doubt and shame and fear, they are resonating within David. That's why he mentions them here. They're resonating with him. But here's what is so powerful about David's example. He owns this. He owns this. He acknowledges this to the Lord. David is very self-aware. His heart is an open book before God. See, this is where, I believe, this is where a lot of us get stalled in our spiritual life. This is where we get stalled. We are unwilling to really look at what's going on inside. We're just unwilling. So we just keep busy. We just keep stuffing our emotions, our loneliness, our fear. We just stuff it, you know, hide it behind this veneer of in invincibility, or, or, or this spiritual maturity veneer, oh, I'm so mature, I don't struggle with those things, right? And the result is this superficial, distant relationship with God. This was me for years. This was me for years. I was totally unaware of how deeply my fear of failure was impacting my life. I was oblivious. I had no clue of how my control issues and my perfectionism and my drivenness were rooted in this shame, this fear of failure. You see, a, a vibrant life with God begins right here with brutal honesty, looking honestly at the battles without and the battles within. And this honesty then enables us to experience the presence of Jesus in those places, in those places. Okay, which leads to the second critical part of David's prayer, and that is truth-filled declarations. Truth-filled declarations. See, while David begins by being brutally honest about his situation, he doesn't stay there in prayer. The trajectory of his prayer completely shifts with one little word. Look at verse 3. One little word, the whole trajectory changes. But... You, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. See, David is saying, yeah, this is my reality. It's not very good, but you, Lord, are. See, David immediately shifts his focus from his current circumstances to something else entirely. And, and what is that something else? Well, it's, it's who God is, but it's actually more than that. This is really, really important. What David focuses upon is who God is for him in his current situation. See, no, notice David doesn't just say, God, you are in control. 
God, you are powerful. God, you are, you're, you're, you're Lord of all. Those are all true. But David takes these attributes of God and he makes them personal to him. So first he says, but you, Lord, are a shield around me. Now, this is really interesting language here because the word shield used here refers to the smaller type shield that we all can kind of envision, the Captain America kind of shield, right? That sort of shield that you would use to thwart arrows. You'd have it on your arm and you would block, you know, things coming in. So that's the kind of shield that's being referred to here. And David was obviously very... Um, aware of this armor. He had used it many, many times. But David makes this personal by saying, you are a shield around me. See, in other words, this is not about my ability to deflect things. No, 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 no. This is about you, Lord, completely surrounding me. You are a shield around me. I am completely surrounded by your protection. It doesn't matter that there are many who rise up against me because I am completely surrounded by the shield of God. Now, there is something so important to notice here. This is really critical. David does not say, Lord, please be a shield around me. This is not a request that David is making here. This is not a prayer request he's making here. It is a declaration of truth. See, David is declaring, you are a shield around me. See, he is declaring what is true about God as it relates to him personally. And this, folks, this is an element of prayer that I don't think we tap into nearly enough. This place where we make these truth-filled declarations. God, this is who you are in my life. This is who you are. God, I am standing on this truth. I am declaring this as true. See, there there is something so powerful about making these declarations, and here's why. It's because often our inner battles, the battles we are having with anger or fear or anxiety or insecurity, they're, they're rooted in lies we're believing. See, often these battles are rooted in lies we're believing. God is a man in me. God doesn't really care about me. I'm on my own. I'm a total failure. My life has no meaning. See, we are constantly susceptible to these lies. So how do you break the power of a lie? By replacing it with truth. See, that's what David is doing here. He is speaking truth into these places where he is vulnerable to believing lies. So think about this, this declaration, you are a shield around me. That is in direct contrast to what people were saying to David. God will not deliver you. God won't deliver you. God's not going to protect you. See, David is intentionally replacing a lie with the truth. And not just one truth. Look at what he says next. This verse is so powerful. Look at what he says next. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, my glory. This is so good, folks. This word glory literally means weight. It means substance. A person's glory is who they are. It's their identity. It's the core, the substance of their life. Now, here's the deal. When we, feel like, when we feel like we're being under attack, when we're under attack or whatever, and bad things are happening to us, guess what area of our lives becomes vulnerable to hearing lies? Our identity. You're such a loser. 
you are a total failure after what you did and you call yourself a Christian? This is happening to you because of all those bad things you did. I mean, imagine, just put yourself in David's shoes for just a moment. Imagine what David must have been hearing internally. And you call yourself a king? (laughs) This is all your fault. Everything that happens here is your fault. Your son, you didn't discipline your son. He's a mess. And now you're running away from him? You coward? I mean, what are you doing? You don't deserve to be king. You don't have what it takes to be a leader. That's what David is hearing. And in light of all of that, look again at David's declaration. You are my glory. In other words, my identity is not wrapped up in my performance. It's not wrapped up in my title. It's not wrapped up in my position. It's not wrapped up in my failure as a father. Lord, you are my glory. You are my identity, my worth, my value. Those things are completely found in you. You are the core substance of my life. See, and again, notice, notice David is not praying, Lord, be my glory, be my glory. No, that's not what he says. That's not what he prays. He is declaring this to be true. You are my glory. And then he says, you, Lord, are the one who lifts my head high. What what a powerful image. Here is David filled with shame, a sense of failure. People are mocking him as he flees the city. They're mocking him. Now, what, what do we instinctively do when we feel like a failure? We drop our head in shame. We drop our head in shame, and we start listening to the lies of the enemy. You are worthless. You are worthless. You are such a failure as a parent. You're such a failure as a husband. You're just such a failure. God could never love you after all the screwed up things you've done. God can never love you, right? We just, we, we drop our head in shame. So again, David replaces these lies that he's battling. He replaces them by declaring the truth. God, you are the lifter of my head. You are the lifter of my head. You love me. You love me. You are pouring out love to me. I don't need to drop my head in shame because you lift my head. Now, it's amazing. It is amazing when you think that David understood these realities and he lived in the Old Testament, right? But here's the deal. I mean, his understanding that God's love was amazing because he lived in the Old Testament. But we, we have an even greater reason to say and believe what he just said. And that's because of Jesus. We're on the other side of the cross. I mean, Jesus paid for our sin on the cross. He paid for all of it. All of our mistakes, including the sins that you and I haven't even committed yet. See, Jesus took our shame on the cross so that we would never have to feel shame again. His forgiveness of you and me enables us to look at him face to face without shame. But it's because of Jesus, and we get to see his heart of love because of Jesus. Paul declares in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. <laughs> nothing, not our failures, not our, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ our Lord. If you've placed your faith in Christ, his face is towards you always. His face is towards you always. He loves you and accepts you always. 
Okay, now here's the deal. This is the, this is the critical point here. I think many of us are missing a huge and transformative dynamic in our life with God because we're letting lies subtly take root in our hearts and our minds. We're just letting them take root there and we're just believing those lies. So here's the deal, folks. Imagine the power of doing what David did. Each one of us here. Imagine the power of regularly declaring the truth of who God is for you and regularly declaring that. So as I was studying this passage, I got inspired to do this in my own life. And so, because here's the deal, I have, like many of us here, I have some core lies. They're just core distortions that for a long time have just these core lies I haven't believed. And in times of difficulty or stress, these lies become more prominent and more active in me. So this past week, as I was kind of inspired by this text, this passage here, I wrote down three, three truth-filled declarations for me personally that I now am stating at the beginning of my prayer time. Whenever I have prayer time with the Lord, I start with these three declarations to uproot the lies that I'm vulnerable to believing. So one of these statements is directly from this psalm. So this is one of my, my core statements here. Lord, you are my glory. My glory is not in my performance. My glory is not in what other people think of me. My glory is not in the size of this church or the accolades I receive. My glory is in you alone. So I am starting my prayer time by, by declaring that. That's a, part of, that's a new part of my prayer time with God. I'm just rooting my soul in these truths, in these three core truths for me. And so I challenge you, I encourage you, Write out two or three, this coming week, write out two or three core truth-filled declarations about God that specifically uproot the lies that you are vulnerable to, the lies that you tend to believe. Write them out. Write them somewhere in the front of your Bible. Write them somewhere on a, a piece of paper and put it in your Bible, whatever. But, and then just begin to, to declare these and make sure you make them personal to you, who God is for you. And then once you've done that, just begin declaring these things over your life. Again, they're not prayers. God, be my glory. No, it's you are my glory. Declare them. No matter what is happening around you, declare these things. It's like every time you pray, you're just kind of driving these stakes into God. This is who I am. God, this is who you are. And I'm declaring this to be true. Even if my world has fallen apart around me, I'm declaring this to be true. Powerful. So powerful. That one verse, verse three. Man, spend some time there this week. Encourage you to. It is just so powerful what David is doing in that part. Okay, the third movement now in this, in this prayer, there is movement here, but the third movement is found in verses four and five, and it's what I refer to here as relational rest. Relational rest. So let me, let me, let's unpack this. In this section now, we see this wonderful relational aspect of David's prayer life. Look at verse four. He says, I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. Now what's happening here is prayer in its most basic form. This is not complicated. David says, I call on the Lord. That's exactly what prayer is. When the first time anyone prayed in Genesis chapter six, that's what, this is the, this is the word verb that was used. That's what they did. And people began calling on the name of the Lord. That's all prayer is, right? It's, it's simple. It's just, it's not complicated. It's calling out to God. 
It is asking him for help. But David does add a dimension to this that is so refreshing and so important. Look again at what he says. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. See, this is not one-way communication. Would David just kind of pour out his, his, his request and then, okay, I'm done praying. No, this, this is two-way dialogue. This is a relationship, not a vending machine. A vibrant prayer life with God involves not only calling upon the Lord, absolutely call upon the Lord for help, but also listening to him. See, it's a, it's a relationship where we open our hearts to receive from him, letting God speak to us, letting his spirit speak to us. See, often our prayer lives can become this one-sided conversation where we're doing all the talking. And all of us here know, how do you feel in a conversation where you're in a conversation with someone and they do all the talking? And they never ask you how you're doing. They never listen to what you're saying. They just do all the talking. You don't feel very close to them, right? You just don't. It hinders the relationship. So for David, prayer was an expression of this very close, personal relationship with God. And notice the result here, verse 5. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. This word sustain here literally means to lay on. It's this powerful picture. David is describing how his relationship with God is this place of rest. He's just kind of taking all these burdens and he's just sort of rolling them on the Lord. And so his relate, including himself, he's just, his relationship with God is just this place of rest that he can just rest in God's protection and God's provision. He even says, I mean, this is the ultimate test. I can sleep at night, <laughs> right? I lay down and go to sleep. That is like the ultimate test, isn't it? For those of us who struggle with that. It, but the, the ultimate, the, the test of whether we're resting in God. He can sleep at night because he's just resting. He's taken all these problems and he's just kind of rolled them onto God and said, they're yours. I've been reading this book um, by Greg Boyd uh, called Seeing is Believing. Really fascinating book. But in it, he makes this statement. While there is an important place for endeavoring to fulfill oughts, in the Christian life, the most fundamental thing believers need is to have regular times when they rest in an experience of Jesus as real. We need to rest in an experience of God's care for us, God's joy over us, and God's peace with us. Do you ever do that? Did you ever take time to just rest in God? To, to intentionally rest in your relationship with him. We can become so frantic, especially when we're in a attack, that we forget to rest in who God is. To just take a, a few deep breaths and remind our soul, God is the one who sustains me. God is the one who sustains me. I can rest in that. Well, there's one more aspect of David's um, uh, prayer that we find in, in, in Psalm 3 here, and that's what I would call bold commands. Bold commands. There is a warfare kind of praying that comes out at the end of this psalm. So look, look with me, verse 7. Arise, Lord. 
Deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. This is such a contrast to what we just read, right? I will sleep in peace and now arise. You know, what is going on here? I actually love that about the Psalms. I love that about the Psalms because David is not giving us this neat and orderly workshop on how to pray. He's not. He's just praying his heart. He's just praying his heart. He's opening his heart up to God, and he's praying in the midst of this incredible, dark, and difficult circumstance. And, some, and there's this peaceful rest, and all of a sudden it's like, do something about this, God. You know, it's just this, this place of there's life here. This is just David's heart. This isn't a formula. This is just his heart being laid open, and I love that. And, and, and so this leads him to this, this very intense ending to this prayer, a bold command. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike my enemies on the jaw. And they're the ones who have been taunting him, so that would, that would take care of that, right? Um, so strike, I mean, he's very specific here, but he's just saying, deliver me. See, there, there's this warrior, there's this warrior coming out here in prayer. Not warrior, warrior, okay? There's a warrior coming out here in prayer, and that's important. See, yeah, prayer is to me this, it's this very personal relational engagement with God, absolutely. But it can also be warfare, where we are boldly coming against whatever the enemy is trying to do in our lives and in our families. Because a lot of times, the attacks we experience from people have the devil's fingerprints all over them. They just do. They're, they're attacks from people, but they also have the devil's fingerprints all over them. And it can be really helpful to recognize that in prayer, to recognize what's going on in prayer, that there's a spiritual aspect to this. So I was talking with a woman uh, a couple weeks ago. She said, Pastor, I got to tell you this story. <clears throat> I got to tell you what happened to us. So she was telling me about, I um, mean, her marriage, her and her husband have been married um, for a number of years and uh, they, are, they have not been connecting very well. Um, they had not been connecting well. <clears throat> and they, they, again, married a long time and they were just feeling more irritated with each other and, uh, and um, distant with each other. And she said, what made it worse is we didn't really feel like working on it. So we knew this is where we were, you know, under the same roof, living in the same house, but just not connecting. And we didn't really want to do anything, this apathy about it. So in the midst of that, <clears throat> I had preached a message. We were going through Luke. I preached a message about spiritual warfare and how the enemy is very much at work in our lives. And so this woman, she felt very strongly that her and her husband needed to specifically pray against the enemy's work in their marriage. So one night before going to bed, they did that. <clears throat> they, they spent some time and they, they prayed together this kind of warfare prayer against the enemy's work. Next morning, when she got up, she was just describing this. She said, things felt totally different. So she went out into the kitchen where her husband had already been up and, and she said, is it me <clears throat> or does it feel like only two people are living in this house now? And he said, I was wondering the same thing. I was going to ask you the same thing. There was a completely different atmosphere in their marriage. There was now a desire to work on things rather than having this pervasive apathy and irritation, right? This increasing contempt for each other. There was a desire to work on things. And they realized afresh, this is a battle and it's not over. This is just a little skirmish, right? This is a battle, and we need to regularly pray together against the enemy's work because the enemy loves to destroy our relationships, especially marriage. That's just what he does. 
See, this is, that is such a great reminder. Our enemy is not our spouse, right? Our enemy is the enemy, right? This is just a great reminder. Yeah, yeah prayer is about resting in the Lord, absolutely. And it's about being rooted in our identity in Him and asking for Him, all of those things, absolutely. But sometimes, sometimes we need to take it to the enemy in prayer, we need to call out what the enemy is doing and say, enough of this. <laughs> it stops here. Arise, Lord. Drive back the enemy's work here. Break his power over the situation, over my marriage, over my children, over my life. There are times we need that kind of prayer. And it just comes from this, the heart of David, right? That's what David's doing here. Because he, he knows, as he says in the last verse, from the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. This is where David's prayer concludes. It's where his heart has settled in. You know, just his heart is settled in here. It's in this realization that God is powerful and God is good and that he is for us. This psalm is just eight verses long. Eight verses long. But man, there is power here. There, there is power to go deeper here and to just engage this psalm in personally in our lives. There are some life-giving prayer practices that are revealed in this psalm. When, when we feel like we're under attack and everything is falling apart, man, God invites us. He shows us here. He invites us to this vibrant prayer experience that involves brutal honesty. It involves truth-filled declarations. It involves relational rest and bold commands. It's powerful. It's so powerful. So let's pray. So here, here's what I want us to do. Um, I want us to have some space to respond personally to what we've just heard. And, and I, want you to, I want to point out something. In this psalm, you can look at this later. And you can just kind of bow your head. I'm going to talk to you for just a moment. But you can kind of just quiet your heart, close your eyes if you want. But there's a Hebrew word that's used four times in this psalm. Just eight verses, but it's used four times. It's the word selah. And no one knows for sure what the word selah means. But most scholars agree it's some type of musical term that gives direction to whoever is singing this song. Okay? So we know that. Many scholars believe that this Word is an encouragement to pause, to pause in the song. And that's what I want us to do right now. I want us to practice right now, to pause and to let this psalm speak to us personally and stir us in resp to respond in prayer. So here's what is, we're going to just have some, a time of a couple minutes here, just quiet, but maybe... What's being stirred in you is just this brutal honesty. You're just going to finally bring some of the stuff up that's happening, and you're, you're just frustrated with the Lord. You're frustrated about what's going on, and you're going to just quietly in your heart, you're just going to tell the Lord that. Just a brutal honesty about what you're wrestling with. Or maybe what's being stirred in you is just this, this truth-filled declaration of who God is for you. Maybe you are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. But you're just declaring, maybe in your own soul, just quietly declaring something as true. Or maybe in this next couple minutes, you're just going to take some deep breaths and just rest in the Lord sustaining you. 
rest in your relationship with him. It's like, I'm just rolling all these problems onto you. You've got this, Lord. Or perhaps there's going to be stirring in you this desire to do some bold praying. And just to say, arise, Lord. Enough is enough. Arise, Lord. So what I want us to do, I want us just to give room before we start singing in a couple minutes, I want us just to give room to experience this psalm personally and to just kind of pray into whatever aspect of this is being stirred in your heart. So let's just do that right now. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and we want this psalm to be even more real to us right now. And I bring this back together here. And you may be thinking, oh, that was too short. Well, here's the cool thing. You can do this anytime. <laughs> you take this psalm and just spend time in it. This week, spend five, ten minutes in it. Just, or go over it a few times. Just walk through the, the tool that we've used. Just You can spend time in this and let the Lord continue to speak to you. Because there is gold here. There is so much good stuff here. Okay, so if it feels too short, that's awesome. You can do it on your own. So, um, but let me just pray for us. God, thank you for your word. It is so powerful and it's so real and it's so helpful in the midst of when we feel attacked, when we feel our lives are falling apart. Man, there's so much here. And so I pray you'd help us just continue to meditate on your word, to chew on it and to make, you'd continue just to make this more and more real to us where we're at. And so I pray for your word to have that effect. Thank you for what it's already done in us, just in our time together here. And we pray for more. That we would pray like David prayed and experience you in that way. And we thank you, God, for this opportunity right now to, to kind of transition from this prayer, but very much these themes to, to worshiping you and to declaring who you are. And so we ask you to set us free to do that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. So why don't we stand as uh, we continue to worship the Lord? If you want to sit down at some point, that's totally cool. But let's begin standing here.
and declaring together who God is, how awesome he is. Holy Spirit set us free to do that.